are listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. Though located in the heart of the Silicon Valley, you will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival preaching from the pulpit of North Valley Baptist Church. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. I'm open to Matthew chapter number 9, please, in your Bibles. Uh, I mean, get in. Good night. I'm excited this morning. How many are excited to be under the spout where the glory comes out? I'm about as excited as that old boy. He was so nervous when he got married. The preacher said, I now pronounce you man and wife. He was so nervous. He was so excited. He kissed the preacher, gave his wife $50, and left with his mama. He was excited. And I'm excited this morning. Matthew chapter number 9, please, in your Bibles. Matthew 9 and verse number 9. And uh, I hate to bother you. You look so comfortable. Should I have them? Dr. Treber, should I have them stand up? Let's stand up. Why don't everybody stand up? You won't be standing long. And don't worry about standing up. You'll be sitting down a long time before I do. Uh, Dr. Treber, you didn't tell me when to stop. Ten minutes, all right? I'll try to remember that. All right. Okay, here we go. Matthew chapter 9, verse number 9. And as Jesus passed from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. Now here was a man that came under the power and the influence of the Son of God and God the Son. And realizing in a moment's time, in a second, the overwhelming call that this God of heaven had placed on him made a move. He followed him. And the Bible tells us that in that single move, not only did he inherit eternal life, not only was his life changed, but the Bible says in Matthew 19, verse number 28, last part of the verse, When the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of His glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, imagine that. When the great kingdom comes, and the Lord comes back at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, and we're sitting on the throne of His glory in the kingdom, there'll be twelve thrones, and the twelve disciples will sit on the throne, and Matthew will be one of them, and it all happened in a second when he made that move. Made that move. Made that move. I bring you a message this morning entitled, Make That Move. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Holy Spirit of God, I want to thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've already done for me in this service this morning and last night. Brother Joe Arthur and the great, great camp meeting style message. Lord, it took my mind back to that maze Jackson he referred to and other great men of God. Oh, Lord, I'm glad old-time religion's still doing pretty good around here. I'm glad about that, and I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'll bless us now as we preach the Bible, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated please you may be seated one who was a great chess player from his youth said that chess was a game of exhaustless moves he had studied chess from his early years he said that over a million moves had been analyzed in the chess game and the end was not yet he said the object of the chess game is to checkmate the king of your opponent in a move. And when you can checkmate the king, you're on your way to success. If you checkmate the king in four moves, your opponent is done 
He's doomed, and it's over with. Years ago, there was a great artist in Cincinnati, Ohio. And this great artist was not only a gifted artist, but he was also a great chess player. And he painted a picture. And in this picture, there was a young man sitting on one side of the table and of the chessboard. And on the other side of the table was the devil. I have that picture in my possession in my briefcase back where my wife is sitting now. A, a copy. I don't have the picture. I've got a copy of it, of the picture. The young man is on one side. Satan is on the other. The young man is moving the white pieces and Satan is moving the black pieces. If the young man should win, he is ever free from the power and the clutches and the slavery of the devil. But if Satan won... He was to be Satan's slave forever. Now this artist believed in the supreme power of evil. And in the, on the board, Satan had just announced a checkmate in four moves on this young man. And I'll show you the picture if you'd like to see it after the service. And you can see him, he's staring at the board. His face is pale. His hand is held up in disbelief. He's awed by his doom that it's over. For years, that picture hung in a great art gallery. People from all over the world, chess players especially, came there to analyze that picture. And all of them were in agreement. The young man is doomed. It's over for him. Finally, after years, another chess player who was a great chess player rose, and he came and looked at the picture. And after analyzing the picture, he surmised what all the others had surmised that the young man was doomed. But as he stared at the picture, he knew that if there was any hope for that young man, it would be because of a man by the name of Paul Morphy. Now, I'm not into chess, never played a game of life, but any of you that have ever been in the game of chess or studied anything about it, you lit up when I said that name, Paul Morphy. Paul Morphy was the undefeated champion in the matter. It was legendary. He was a freak of nature. Uh, New York Times said there has never been a mind like that before, and there will never be a mind like that ever again. When he was 10 years old, he was amazed. He was amazing the greatness of the greats in what he could see. He was a man that could figure five moves ahead and all the configurations of his opponent coming together. As a matter of fact, they said he often could configure an entire game once it started and how it would end and all the moves thereof. I have a sketch. I don't have it with me, but I've got a sketch of Paul Morphy sitting with his back to the chessboard, blindfolded, telling a man what moves to make, and his opponent was announcing what moves he was making, and without looking at the board, he was winning games, and he did that a lot. He had an unthinkable, uh, he was a freak of nature, an unthinkable thing. He died at age 47. He fried his brain. He quit playing chess long before he died because of mental strain. Well, this man knew that if there was anybody in the world that could see a way out for this young man, it would be Paul Morphy. He lived in New Orleans, Louisiana, and uh, he had been quit, uh, though he died at 47, he had been quit playing chess for several years, 
But, and nobody could get him out of retirement. Nobody could pull him out. He said, I'm, I'm done. He was frying his brains, what he was doing. And so this man contacted Paul Morphy, and through a series of invites and arrangements, he arranged to have Paul Morphy brought to the great art gallery. I would, I'm a poor man, but I'd give a lot of money if I could have been standing there when Paul Morphy walked into that gallery. They said when he walked into the gallery, he looked and saw the picture. And when he saw the picture, all of a sudden, he was transfixed. It's like he forgot to breathe. It was like you take his picture and just put it on the wall. There he was. And they said he stood there <clears throat> five minutes, <clears throat> ten minutes, not a flinch, not a move, staring at that picture. Ten minutes, twenty. They said thirty minutes went by. He was just standing there. They said all of a sudden, his right hand went up and across and down and slowly down. In a little bit, his right hand went up again, slowly to the left and to the right, and slowly went down. He stood there a little longer. And in a little bit, that right hand went up again, slowly to the right, up to the left, back to the right, and stopped. And all of a sudden, his eyes began to burn. His breathing rate increased. And all of a sudden, he began to say, young man, young man, make that move, make that move, make that move. And the shock and amazement of all that stood around. Here was, the, here was the champion. The master had come. And he had found a release and an escape for a young man that had been doomed for years. I want to say to you this morning, thank God the master has come. And you don't have to live in bondage. And you don't have to live in fear. And we as men of God and preachers, we can take that stand and know the master has come. And he said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. The master has come. I want to say to you this morning, Matthew made that move. The master had come. The great God made that, and he made that move. Peter made that move when he said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Joshua made that move when he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And David made that move when he said, is there not a cause? And he faced that giant. In a moment, he made that move. I'm speaking to people all over this area that need to make that move this morning. We need to make that move, first of all, concerning the word of God. The word of God. Peter made that move in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse number 16, when he said these words, when he said, uh, we were eyewitnesses of his glory. When we were up there on that Mount of Transfiguration, there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. And then he said, we have also a more sure word of prophecy than that. We got something more exciting, more uh, dependable, more solid than even the voice we heard when we were with him up on the Mount. And he went on to say no prophecy of the scripture as of any private interpretation and then he said holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost later he said Peter says being born again not of corruptible seed but of incorruptible by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever David made that move in Psalms 12 verse 6 and 7 when he talked about the word of God and said the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth purify 
multiplied seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. He made that move and he says, we'll always have the word of God. We'll always have the word of God. David made that move in Psalms and Paul made that move in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 16 when he said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness. And by the way, the scripture he referred to was a scripture he had just referred to, to a verse before that when he told Timothy and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures. Do you know that the scriptures that Paul said was inspired was given to young Timothy copies from centuries past. The originals had been, uh, had been gone for centuries when Paul said uh, that Bible that I'm telling you about, Timothy, it's inspired of God. That's what he's saying here. Somebody said, well, you act like the King James Bible is inspired. Look, we, and somebody said, well, you believe in the re-inspiration of the Bible. Listen, when something's inspired of God, it don't, you, what God gives life to don't die. And it's inspired of God. Uh, it, it, it don't have to be re-inspired. It was never uninspired. Thank God for that. I'm talking to man. Jesus made that move when he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Uh, and, and he was talking, he wasn't talking about uh, pieces of scripture here and yonder. Uh, he's talking about, is written of me, Jesus said, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. Uh, aren't you glad we've got a book? And then he said in John 10, 35, the scriptures cannot be broken. You can't, you can't just break it up. In, in, we're talking about a volume. We're talking about a book. You say, oh, the word of God is rendered in the sum of many translations and pieces of here and yonder. And you know what? I had a car wreck. Somebody said, did you survive? I said, yes. They said, did your car survive? I said, yeah, it survived in about 10,000 pieces. It survived. No, my car didn't survive. If it's in 10,000 pieces, it didn't survive. You can't drive it. You can't use it. It's no good. If the word of God has only survived in 10,000 pieces, it is of no good. Somebody said, well, Brother Brown, where are you going to get such a book as that? Well, I'm going to tell you where you don't get it. You don't get it out of a Catholic convent, uh, St. Catherine's trash can and garbage can, uh, uh, a text used by two wicked men who didn't believe the Bible and didn't believe God, Brooke Foss, Westcott, and, Finn, and John Anthony Hort, uh, and they took that and formed the foundation that every translation uh, of the Bible that you ever saw in your life except this King James Bible was taken from. They changed just in the New Testament alone the text 5,000 times. Every Bible. I'm talking about NIV, RSV, ASV, DDT, MIC, KEY, MOUST. I'm talking about all of it is based on that corrupt text. You see, these versions are not a simplification of the King James or another way to say what the King James... These versions are entirely separate. They had a, a, a different origin. They had a different background. They had a different... Fa they came from a, from a different text. And by the way, these were wicked men. Uh, these were sinful men. These were unbelieving men. I'm holding in my hand uh, some of their quotes. You, I'll let you come up here and look at these. Westcott, Westcott said this, I never read an account of a miracle in the Bible. That's what he said. Never read an account of a miracle in the Bible. Listen to this. Westcott said to Hort, I reject the word infallibility of Holy Scripture overwhelmingly. I reject it. Hort said to Westcott, have you read Darwin? I'm inclined to think it's unanswerable they believed in evolution. Uh, Hort said to Ellerton, 
but the book which has most engaged me is Darwin. They do not believe in the blood atonement. Uh, Hort says, the fact is, I do not see how God's justice can be justified without every man suffering in his own, uh, for his own personal and full penalty of his sins. Friend, I'm glad I don't have to suffer for my sins. Amen. Hey, they believed in purgatory. Hort said to Ellington, I'm giving quotes. Come up here and look at them after service. But the idea of, of purgatory, of cleansing as by fire, seems to be inseparable from what the Bible teaches about divine chastisement. Believed in purgatory. They also believed in prayers for the dead. They believed in communism and hated uh, capitalism. Here's what they said. I suppose I'm a communist by nature, Westcott said. Hort said, I cannot say that I see much as yet to soften my deep hatred for democracy in all of its forms. Hort says, I would say that the cooperative principle of communism is better and a mightier than the competitive principle of the free enterprise system. These, these men were unbelievers. They were compromisers. They didn't believe the Bible. They openly said so. And then prayers for the dead. And then worship of Mary. I am... I'm far, I have, uh, let me read it to you here. This is worth our time. Uh, I have uh, uh, been persuaded that Mary worship and Jesus worship have very much in common in their causes and their, in their results. Here's Westcott. I believe in the sacraments, the Catholic sacraments. Uh, here is, um, uh, he said again, I believe in baptismal regeneration. Westcott said, by baptism, a man will, if he will, truly live forever. Hort says, we maintain baptismal regeneration is the most important of doctrines. Hort said this, I wrote to warn uh, this certain fellow that I was not safe or traditional in my theology and that I would not give up association with heretics and the such like. They did not believe in heaven. They did not believe in the coming of the Lord. They, did, they denied the, the oneness of the Trinity. They doubted the soul's existence apart from the body, and that's just the beginning. And let me tell you something. We are plagued with a bunch of gainsayers who've written fancy books that are, that are preying on our young preacher boys and are, and are telling them that, that the, the old King James Bible's got errors in it. Let me tell you something. It's an error in your ungodly mind. I don't come to this book looking for errors. I come to this book looking for life. Amen. Amen. I'm, I'm getting around this morning in my room trying to get ready. And my wife's reading the Bible like she always does every morning. And I'm trying to get ready. And I come by and, and, uh, and she said, listen, honey, you got to hear this. you got to hear this. And she'd read me something. I said, honey, that's good. And I'm, on my, I'm trying to get my sermon on my mind. I'm around in the room a little bit. She said, listen to this, Larry. Listen to this. And I, I listened a little while. And she said, Larry, stop. you got to hear this. Come over here. And she's over there where it says that we were to take the word of God. God and teach it to our children, she began to cry. And she said, Larry, we're not teaching the Word of God to our children anymore. We're not. Oh, I'm glad I've got a Bible I can live by. It stirs my soul. I'm glad. Thank God. Thank God of that. Amen. Let me tell you what we need to do. Uh, somebody, oh, the Word of God's wintered in the sum of many translations. Well, go unwinter it, you nut. If you think the Word of God's out there somewhere, go get it. You know, they're not using versions anymore, by the way, when they preach. No, all this tech, all they do is pick out a verse out of some corrupt text and flash it up on the screen. That's all they're doing. That's all they're doing. Well, you cannot explain to me how the King James Bible came. And you can't explain to me the new birth. 
We know this book is from the pure text. We know it's from the textus receptus. We know it's from the received text. And can we explain all the process by which God gave it? No. And you can't explain the new birth. And you can't explain the bodily resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ either. There's a whole lot of things you can't explain. I can't explain how a black cow can eat green grass and give yellow butter and white milk. But I believe it's true. And friend, I want to tell you something. Hey, we're people of faith. We know God said that he would preserve every word of God and that it would be preserved unto every generation. And believing that and knowing that and know that we've got the only volume in the English language that came from the pure text and knowing where all the other Bibles came from and how corrupt they were and the men that produced that text was. Hey, listen, folks. It don't take much faith to just know you got the word of God in your hand. But we're people of faith. We're people of faith. Hey, we need to mount our pulpit and say that on Sunday morning. And I'll tell you another one too. You that are doubting the King James Bible and you that say, well, there's better translations and there's better readings. You that would not get up and say, I hold in my hand the inspired, inerrant, jot and tittle, perfect word of God. If you wouldn't say that, why don't you tell your people that? You don't tell your people that because they kick you out the door. You're a hypocrite. You're a liar. If, if, if you take this, well, this is the Word of God. Do you really believe that? Do you believe it's jot and tittle perfect? Do you believe it's inspired of God? Hey, tell your people that. Tell your people that. Tell them you don't believe that you hold an inspired book in your hand. Tell the people that you don't believe they're a jot and tittle perfect Bible anymore. Why don't you get up and tell them, you hypocrite? Why don't you tell them, you yellow-bellied, chicken-livered, coward you? Why don't you be honest with your people that come to church and give you their money and sit there depending on you to keep their little babies out of hell and to keep their marriages together and to rescue the perishing and care for the dying with a corrupt Bible? Why don't you get up and tell them? Quit being a hypocrite. I don't like your preaching. I don't like your looks, and we're even. My friend, I want to tell you this right now. I've been preaching this way for 58 years. I can't quit this morning just because you look like your mom-in-law's moved in with you. I'll tell you that right now. Amen. Go home and mount your pulpit. I was going to climb on this, but I took a look at it. Go home and mount your pulpit and rear back and preach the book that God has ordained. Go home and take, I like what Dr. Treber said, go home and take that little glass, sissy, queer-looking podium and throw that thing to hell. Get out the King James Bible and stand behind the Word of God. Preach the Bible. Say amen. Amen. Absolutely. I was with a group of preachers uh, two weeks ago, I guess it was, was in another state out east. And they said, Brother Brown, we want to have a question and answer time with the pastors. And there was quite a few pastors there. And they came together. And uh, so I've answered a couple of questions, and a man raised his hand in the back. He said, Brother Brown, can you help us? I said, what's the problem? He said, we're scared. We're pastors. All of us pastors are scared. We're afraid because of the election, because of some legislation that's coming down. We're afraid. Can you help us, Pastor Brown? And I thought, my soul. I mean, I flew out here on an airplane. What if I'd have been 32,000 feet in the air? The pilot walks out and he said, folks, uh, we're encountering a storm. They just told us a storm just ahead and it's a bad one. And quite frankly, 
I'm scared to death. If anyone has a suggestion, would anybody like to ask a question or answer our question? We're scared to death. Hey, that wouldn't comfort me. I mean, if he can't run it, get somebody up there and can. Say amen. Men of God, listen, we've got people. Look, I know perliest times have come. Troublesome times are here filling men's hearts with fear. Freedoms we all hold dear. Now we're at stake. I know that. But this is no time for the master of the ship to turn tail and run. And this is no time for the men of God not to stand and take their stand on right. And listen, good night. I'm not afraid. I've got a God that said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I don't know what's going to happen, but he said over and over again in this book, fear not, fear not. And I want to project that to you this morning, layman, if you're here and your pastor hasn't got enough guts to get up and boldly say, God, be not dismayed, whatever be tied. God will take care of us within his arm forever. God, if you don't have enough guts to say that, then hey, I'm telling you this morning, you don't have to be afraid. The same God that saved you is the God will see you through whatever mess we're heading into right now. Amen. The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. And by the way, when you go home and climb that pulpit, be dressed like a preacher. Be dressed like a preacher. I'm sick and tired of seeing lawyers and air, airline uh, pilots and other important politicians and other important people come dressed like somebody that is representing something important and God's being coming in with open collared shirts. God have mercy on you. This is not a casual business. It's heaven or hell. It's eternity. It's the God of heaven that we represent. Amen. We need some boldness. I'm too old to kowtow to these little chicken-livered preachers that ain't got enough guts to get up and preach the truth. I'm just too old for that. Well, I've known the giants. I, I remember, I didn't know him, but I heard old Lynn Broughton down yonder in, in, in Atlanta debating a ranked liberal. I mean, a liberal didn't believe the virgin birth, the inspiration of the Bible. And, and Broughton, was, he was eating his lunch. He was taking him apart and in, and publicly, in a public debate. And, and, uh, and this liberal got mad. He lost it. I mean, he lost his temper. He grit his teeth. And, look, and Lynn Broughton was a little short fellow, just a little short fellow. He grit his teeth and looked at Lynn Broughton and said, Why, you little runt, I'll bite your head off and swallow it. And Lynn Broughton said, If you did, you'd have more brains in your stomach than you did your head, buddy, I'm telling you. The master has come. His hand has gone up. His eyes are as the flame of fire. And I want to tell you something. He's saying to us as men of God, Make that move. 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 We need to make that move. I don't know what time I'm to be done. Let me just preach a little more here and get done. We need to, and by the way, I just threw this point in. I'm about to get just before, just before I left the room this morning. We need to make that move in the matter of soul winning. Psalms 40 and verse number 9. I have preached thy righteousness in the great congregation. Preached in the great congregation. You say, boy, this is the great congregation. No, it's not. The great congregation is beyond the confines of these buildings right here. I mean, that's where the great congregation is. Uh, you know, I, we've cooled down about soul winning. We've cooled down. I, I, I came out of the room this morning. I'm in a hurry. When, I, when I'm, I'm about to preach, I mean, honestly, I just have to deliberately not forget my wife. I forget and leave her in the room or anything. I mean, just, just because I, and she understands that. Uh, she knows that when I'm about to preach, I mean, it's, it's get out of the way. He'll have to run over you, you know. And, uh, 
And, and so I, I, I didn't have anything but preaching on my mind. And I opened the doors, looked down the hall. I was going to find a place to pray. And I looked down the hall, and right across the hall was Dora. Found out her name was Dora, a 30-ish lady. And she was cleaning the room. She was starting out. I just came, got a track, and I said, what's your name? She said, Dora. I said, Dora, let me give you something to read, a little gospel track. Tell you I can go to heaven when you die. I said, do you know, I said, if you were to die right now, would you be 10%, 50%, or 75% sure you'd go to heaven? She looked at me, her eyes got big. Oh, no. I stood right there and led her to Christ. Wonderfully. I went down the hall, and there was another lady. I thought, this is fun. I went down the hall, and there was another lady, and she was uh, working her table, and I gave her a track, and I asked her the same question. She said, no, don't know, don't know. She spoke good English. She was Hispanic. And, spoke. and, and, uh, and I said, let me show you right here how to be saved. And she got saved. Oh, listen, I, 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 I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. But let me tell you something, friend. We need to preach the righteousness of God to the great, con the great congregation. is not, And that's where the lost are. Then we drive up. We get up on Sunday morning uh, as an evangelist. And, and we bumping shoulders with these ladies cleaning rooms and people sitting in the salon, the girl behind the desk and all that. And then we get over to the church and God's going to send you to hell if you don't. They ain't even there. They're over at the motel. They're in the great congregation. Amen. We've cooled about this thing of soul, soul winning. Uh, I was preaching for Travis Lewis uh, here recently and, and uh, preached on Sunday morning and he told me I could lay down. He had a little upper room there in his house. said I could lay down there. So I went up but before I went in the house, I said, who's all those boys shooting basketball out there? He said, well, they're boys from the community. He said, they, uh, I let them shoot basketball here. They don't disturb anything. And I thought it was a good PR. And uh, I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, well, that's good. And I went on in the house, never thought a thought. Went in the house, and I got my trousers off, and I laid down. And I thought about those boys. They are part of the great congregation. And I said, Lord, I'm too tired. I'm too tired. When I get done preaching, I'm tired. And I said, I'm too tired. And then I thought, oh, Lord. Lord, oh, God, I hold. The, I'll get over there this morning and preach hell, hot, heaven, real, death, sure, and time short. But those boys aren't there. They're, they're not in church. They don't know God. I got up, put my britches on, and I just slowly walked out, and they were shooting basketball. I said, boys, I don't want to interrupt your game, but I got something so important I got to tell you. And they just stopped and stared at me. And I, I gave them all tracks, and I just started telling them about the Lord and witnessing to them. I watched five of the nine bow their head and trust God as Savior. Oh, if I'd only do that more. If I'd only do it more. We've cooled in our event. Uh, Brother Stansel, the funniest story I ever heard. He, the convert got saved down there at Windsor Hills, and he got saved, and, uh, and he didn't know anything about soul winning. Never seen anybody get saved except himself and those that got saved on the same Sunday there when Dr. Hudson was pastor of the church. And, and Brother Stansel took him out soul winning. And they went to a house, and they went in the house, and it was a man and his wife, three children. And they talked to him about the Lord. They, they all bowed their head and prayed and asked the Lord to save them.
and got saved. And man, Brother Stanson said, when we came out of that house, that young convert, he was so overwhelmed, he, he was about to explode, he was about to float away. And said, when we came out the door, he ran out the driveway, right out in the middle of the street, and was doing like this, stopping traffic. And said, there was a big 18-wheeler coming down the street. Right, to, and Brother Stanson said, uh, oh, Brother Hudson said, uh, there ain't two kinds of people on the streets of Atlanta, Georgia, the quick and the dead. That's the only two kinds. And he said, he said he stopped this 18-wheeler, and the little boy locked her down and rolled the window and said, hey, good buddy, what's going on? He said, five people just got saved in that house over there. Well, he thought it had been a fire or something, you know. They got saved. And he said, oh, yeah, how did it happen? He said, let me show you how it happened. He climbed up on the side of the truck. Brother Stancho went back and told Dr. Hudson, he said, God being my witness, I had to stand at the back of that truck and direct traffic around that semi while that young convert won that truck driver to God. Do you remember when you first got saved? Do you remember when you first got saved and you wanted to tell the whole world about it? Amen. Praise the Lord. And I, I, Listen, do you remember? Yeah. I'm afraid I'll make a fool out of myself. Somebody was telling about a preacher they talked to. Said he was sitting in an airport in full of people ready to board the plane. He said, all of a sudden, it just hit me. I just need to break through. He didn't use the term, what, make that move. He never heard this sermon. He said, I just need to break through. And he said, I just stood up and said, ladies and gentlemen, um, for all of you going to wherever, Philadelphia, whatever, said, uh, you're going to need two tickets today. People looked at each other. Uh, you'll need the ticket you have, but then you're going to need another ticket, and I have it right here, in case the plane don't make it to Philadelphia. Uh, you're going to need this ticket. Uh, because if the plane goes down, you're going to need a ticket to heaven. And he said people were just staring at him. And he said, then he couldn't think what to do then. And he said, I just stood there and they were staring at me. He said, I just slowly sat down. And he said, when I sat down, I thought, you have made a complete idiot out of yourself. You have made a complete fool out of yourself. He said, we sat there a little while and said the, the lady behind the desk came on and said, ladies and gentlemen, for all of those boarding flight 5162 to Philadelphia, uh, she said, uh, uh, we, we're going to have a slight delay. We've discovered a mechanical difficulty with the plane. He said, I was cutting my eyes around and said, you could see all of them. You could see it in their eyes. All of them thinking the same thing. We may need that ticket. We may need that ticket. He said, when finally, when it came time to board, I don't know how many. I forgot. Brother Tony, your daddy told this story. You might can tell. I don't know how many there was. Came by him and said, leaned over and said, you got another one of those tickets? You got another one of those tickets? Let me tell you something. You don't lose when you tell the world, the great congregation about it. We need to make that mute to be pure. Genesis 39, 7, Joseph came to that point. He was a 17-year-old boy, and I don't know how old he was, much older than that, when Potiphar's wife cast her eyes upon him and said, lie with me. But he said he refused. The Bible, I love those words. He refused. He said, my master's given me everything except you. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He made that move. Let me give you a thought or two and move on here and close the sermon down a little. I don't have any idea how long I'm to preach or what time it is or anything. Uh, but anyway, um, a young man at Bob Jones University years ago heard a message on purity. Keep thyself pure. He went back to the dorm room and said to his roommate, let's make a covenant with God that we'll never kiss a girl till we marry her. And his roommate said, I will if you will. And down on their knees they went. Would you like to know what that young man's name was? Billy Graham. 
And I'm not here to justify Billy Graham's ecclesiastical compromise. Far from it. But I've got a question to ask anybody under any tent in this place. What did you ever in your lifetime hear about Billy Graham being impure or any innuendo in this day of Jimmy Jones, Jimmy Swagger, Jimmy Baker, and all the rest of the Jimmy? What did you ever hear about Billy Graham? See, he died at age 99. There was never a question brought up about it. See, you don't know this. But I studied, and I, Jeremy Colburnett, my son-in-law, is here tonight, uh, this morning. And I, I was in, staying with Jeremy there, visiting my family, and I picked up a book and I read it. That Billy Graham would never, in all of his years, he would never go in a motel room till he had two of his staff members go in and look around first before he walked in. He said, I don't have to do anything wrong, immoral. All I've got to do is have some woman say I did. And he said, I'm done. And you know that is a fact. He, he made that move. He made that move. I'd love to preach on that for a while. But let me just say this. We need to make that move in purity of mind. We need to make that move in purity of body. God have mercy on you that will come here and so pious and stand up and stand up for Dr. Treber, stand up for the college and stand up for the church and then go and put on your little spaghetti strap nothing to strut around with not enough clothes on to make a pair of leggings for a hummingbird. Shame on you. Shame on you. And don't look at me funny. No, sir, you'll motivate me if you do. Don't you? better watch out. I'll park there. Amen. Make that move. The master has come. His eyes are burning. His hand is up. And he's saying, young lady, make that move. Young man, make that move. And by the way, mom and daddy, we need to make that move. And I appreciate what Dr. Treber said about the internet and about all this. I could not buy an Irish potato on the internet tomorrow if you put a gun to my head. Amen. We need to make that move. Make, make that move to be pure. Make that move to make Jesus Christ Lord of our life. Make that move. Students, I'll never forget, I was a student at Piedmont Bible College in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. There was no Golden State. There was no Hiles Anderson. Uh, there was no commonwealth. There was none of these great Bible colleges when I went to college. But I, every morning, I just got saved. I got saved when I was 18. I was already a student there when I got saved. I professed to be saved, but I wasn't. And um, I would get up every morning. And just before I ran out to class, I kneeled down and I'd say, Now, Lord Jesus. And I don't know why I had this little ceremonial thing. I'd say, Lord Jesus, if there's anything in my life you want, you can have it. If there's anything in this world that you want me to do, I'll do it. And Lord, bless me today. And then I'd take off. Well, one morning I dropped down. I was in a hurry already. And I had my books laying here on the bed. And I prayed that. Are you listening, young people? And I raised my head up and got ready to leave. And I looked across the room. And there was her picture. Eight, and a, eight by ten picture of what I thought at that time was the most beautiful girl in the world. She and I had been writing for a year. Deep in my heart, I knew she was not the one for me, and that's no, it was no bad protocol on her. It's just we were not meant for each other. And when I looked at that picture, the Spirit of the living God said, all this stuff you say before you walk out of the room, do you really mean that or is this just rhetoric? 
And I had to stare at that picture. I walked straight over, took that picture, took it down, put it away, went over and got 101 love letters she had written me in response to 104 I'd written her. And I, I pulled them out of the box and I went outside and I dropped them down on the ground. It was raining that morning. I'll never forget. I had to use an umbrella. And I dropped them down on the ground and, and I struck a match to them. And, and I couldn't leave because, you know, letters don't burn up if you don't stir them. And, uh, and besides, it was raining anyway, and I had to keep the water off of them. And I stayed under that umbrella until I nearly choked myself to death with the smoke. But I kept stirring it up and stirring it up. And I finally got them burnt. And I went back in the dorm. I had to go down and get my books. And I was in a hurry. And when I started down that hall, the old devil crawled up on my shoulder. And he says, you don't have anything now. You don't have anything now. And I'll never forget the words that came to my mind. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Oh, I had to make that move considering my dedication. I'm jealous for the Lord my God. I'd like to read to you a letter written by a communist to his girlfriend. He broke up with her. Here's what he said. We communists, and I'm closing the sermon now, we communists have a high casualty rate. We're the ones who get shot and hung and ridiculed and fired from our jobs and in every other way made as uncomfortable as possible. A certain percentage of us get killed or imprisoned. We live in virtual poverty. We turn back to the party every penny we make above what is absolutely necessary to keep us alive. Now this is the actual letter that he wrote to his girlfriend. Um, we communists do not have the time for money, for many movies or concerts or T-bone steaks, or decent homes, or new cars. We've been described as fanatics, and we are fanatics. Our lives are dominated by one great overshadowing factor, the struggle for world communism. We have a philosophy of life which no amount of money could buy. We have a, we have, we have a cause to fight for, a definite pur uh, purpose in life. We subordinate our petty personal selves into the great movement of humanity. And if our personal lives seem hard or our egos seem to suffer through the subordination to the Communist Party, then we're adequately compensated by the thought that each of us in his small way is contributing to something new and true and better for mankind, and that's communism. There's one thing in which I'm in dead earnest about, and that is the communist cause. It is my life my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my wife, my mistress, my bread, and my meat. I work at it in the daytime, and I dream about it at night. Its hold on me grows, not lessens as time goes on. Therefore, I cannot carry out a friendship, a love affair, or even a conversation without relating it to this great force of communism which drives and guides my life. I evaluate people and looks and ideas and actions according to how they affect the communist cause and by their attitude toward it. I've already been in jail because of my ideals and if necessary, I'm ready to go before a firing squad and with that he signed off and told the girlfriend of his life, No! You get in the way of my cause, communism. Where are the young man 
who will rise up and say, live, die, sink, swim, get fat or die, skinny. I live for Jesus day after day. I live for Let come what may, the Holy Spirit I will obey. Arthur Sullivan said, onward, Christian soldiers marching as to war. The Master has come. The Master has come. He's standing before you. His hand is up. It's moving across. It's moving this way. His eyes are burning. He's discovered something that nobody else has ever discovered to give you, and that is an opportunity to rise up young men and serve the Lord and young ladies give your life to the Lord Dan Whittle said marching on marching on for Christ count everything but lost the master has come if I stumble pick me up if I falter push me on but if I turn back shoot me I've got it I've, I've got to make that move make that move make that move thank you for listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. For more information about our ministry or to find out how to get in contact with us, visit our website at nvbc.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.